are glad you're here this morning, and I uh, only wish you could see Frost in his flight suit. He sent me a picture. He can still, after all those years, fit in in his flight suit, and we wanted to film him in his flight suit, but there's a green screen, and so it had just been this white hair behind uh, that you would have seen talking, so really do echo what Frost shared. Uh, we do not want to take for granted the freedom that we enjoy because of the service that many men and women have given on behalf of us. And so grateful for you and grateful for the gift of marriage and how we've been able to celebrate what God has created in this relationship. So before we jump into Ephesians 5, where we're going to look together again this morning, I just want to acknowledge that I understand everyone who is listening right now is not married. <laughs> I don't know if that amen is, I'm glad I'm not, or I'd like to be, but I recognize that you listen through different ears. But I want to encourage you, this is not only a word of the Lord for the marriage. I hope if you're married, you're listening clearly with what the Lord has to say to you. But I recognize some of you would like to be married or not, or you have been married and you're not, and this might be hard to listen to because it represents some pain in your life. Would you hear what the Lord has, all of us in our unique situations, hear what the Lord has to say to us this morning? Because married or not married, we are all connected to people who are married. And sometimes, more times, more recently, I'm concerned about the way people think about marriage versus what God has to say about it. So uh, this might seem unusual, but before we, before we look at what the Scripture says, here's what I'd ask for each of us to do, whatever our circumstance in life. Lord, would you align my mind with what you say about marriage? Help me to think about marriage as you think about marriage. So, Lord, we each want to be learners, not just listeners. We want to be learners, and we want to agree with you because we want to live spirit-filled lives wherever you have us at this point and whatever you have for us in the future. So thanks for your word. Thank you that you are not silent, but you speak clearly into this human relationship called marriage. So I want to thank you in advance for how your spirit will open eyes, how your word will speak, how it will strengthen, encourage, or admonish and correct. Lord, that we would have ears to hear for you this morning to the praise of your glory in Christ's name. Amen. So this is... Uh, an extension of what we started in Ephesians 5.18, where the scripture says, don't be drunk with wine, but, you know what it said next, remember? Be filled with the Spirit. And we've been using a visual to help us understand what this means, because being filled with the Spirit is different than the promise that God made when he said, when you believe in me, When you repent of your sin and believe that Christ paid the penalty for your sin and you receive the free gift of God, the scripture says he pours himself in the person 
of the Holy Spirit, not a force, not a power, a person. He pours himself into us. So we have the Spirit as children of God. That's a promise. Ephesians 5.18 is a command, a continual command to be being filled. So this is not filled with the Spirit. This is having the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is what Jesus described where he said, I'm going to give my Spirit to them so that rivers of living water will flow through them. And so a life filled with the Spirit is a life in which... The presence of God who dwells in us flows through us. And it genuinely blesses the people that God has placed around us. And in the context of marriage, most profoundly, whom? Our spouse. And if God gives us children, our children. See, this section where we're headed next is how a spirit-filled family functions. And then we'll move to the workplace. But the overriding principle is that God intends his spirit in us to flow through us so that people who would encounter us would have that very real experience. To experience you is to experience God. Not my best imitation of God, but God, because he has not only placed himself in me, he is flowing through me. For that to happen, here's how we've defined a spirit-filled life. For that to happen, for people to experience God through me, I must be willing to place myself under and submit to The word of God. I cannot be living in disobedience to the word and be spirit-filled. So actually, for all of us, myself included, the first step of a spirit-filled life, once I receive the spirit when I'm born again, is to acknowledge, how am I not living according to the scripture? Because when I'm disobeying disobeying the scripture, I'm grieving the spirit. He's not flowing through me. So it begins by being submitted to his will, his word, so that all that he is in me, his holiness, his purity, his love, his patience, all that he is would flow through me and people would experience God, his holiness, his grace, his love, his mercy. It would fully and continually flow through me. That's a spirit-filled life. And I keep coming back to this picture, this visual, because I think it is so compelling to be empowered, to live a life where people experience God. That's rich. That was what was compelling about the life of Jesus. When they heard Jesus talk, they literally said, we have never heard someone talk like this before. And it was because he was fully submitted to the will of his father. And they were hearing from God. Not a man talk about God. They were hearing from God. They were experiencing God. And that's a spirit-filled life. In the context of marriage... Here's what we learned last week from Ephesians 5, that a spirit-filled marriage is a relationship of mutual 
subjection. That subjection is not one part of the marriage relationship. It's because the whole marriage section in Ephesians 5 is introduced by verse 25, verse 21, and be subject to one another, to one another in the fear of Christ. And so, quick review, a spirit-filled husband subject himself to his wife through two means, sacrificial love and servant leadership. He does not do what he wants to do and go, hey, I'm in charge. We do what I want to do. He sacrificially loves as Christ sacrificially loved him, and he servantly leads as Jesus was a servant leader and a spirit-filled wife. Subjects herself to her husband through her submission. And her submission to her husband, the scripture says, is as unto the Lord. And her respect for her husband and the leadership delegated to him by God. So, a spirit-filled marriage. Husbands, if we're not loving and servant leading, we will not be spirit-filled husbands. Wives, if we're not submitting and respecting, not a spirit-filled marriage. For a spirit-filled marriage to thrive, to exist, uh, what we defined was there has to be a willingness to die. To die to self, to die to control, to die to laziness, to pride, to, all, to passivity. Uh, there's all of this dying that has to happen in order to live. You know, that's terrible. No, no. Life is found in dying. Life is found in dying. Jesus said it in every way, folks. If you try and hold on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose my, your life for my sake, what? And you'll find it. Life is found in dying. That's true in relationship with the Lord, and it's true in relationship with marriage. Do you agree with that? Four of you do? Do you agree that life is found in dying, in marriage? Yeah. And so let's not run from it. Let's embrace it. Those are the roles that God has given in how we subject ourselves to one another. So now we're going to continue. That was all review. We're going to continue now in Ephesians 5 and see what I think is the foundation for a spirit-filled marriage from which these roles overflow. So we're going to look at verses 28 through 33. Hope you have a Bible. If not, follow along with me on the screen up here. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 28. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves whom? Really? If you love a wife, you love yourself? How can that be? <laughs> For no one ever tainted his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Why? Because we are members of his body. For the, this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become, say it, one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. That's so confusing, but I'll come back to that. Verse 33, nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. 
So the foundation for marriage that I hope you will walk out with, that you will go, wow, I don't know that I've ever understood this fully, this mystery that what God does is this. A spirit-filled marriage is the unfolding of two me's becoming what? One what? One we. Two we's becoming one we. I'm not trying to be silly here. Most times in marriage ceremonies now, when we give the exchange of the rings, I've changed it to simply say, with this ring, I'm declaring, it will no longer only be me. It will now forever be we, us. That's the fundamental change that happens that makes marriage, marriage. God does not say one plus one equals two. He says one plus one in marriage equals one. That's weird. That's mystery. But that's the key. It's all about understanding what God has in mind in marriage is oneness. It's why Paul quotes for this reason. Let me make sure you understand. Do you know why these words are capitalized? It's not for emphasis. (laughs) These words are capitalized. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They're capitalized because they are a quote, a reference back to when God created marriage in Genesis chapter 2. So before we turn there, let me have your eyes for a moment if you don't mind, please. Now more than ever, when we talk about marriage, we should always ask this question. What was God doing when he created marriage? All the reinterpretations, all the nuances that are under the gun right now about marriage in our culture is because we're not going back to what God was doing when God created marriage in Genesis chapter 2. So you get in a marriage discussion, you should always go, well, let's see what God was doing in Genesis 2. So turn back with me from Ephesians 5. We'll come back and look at that craziness in 30 and 31. But right now, let's go to Genesis chapter 2, and let's answer this question. What was God doing when he created marriage? Because I think we're going to see a three-step progression of what God said and what God did and, now, and then how he interpreted it. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Here's what God was doing when he created marriage. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But, here's the key, but for Adam, there was not found a helper, what, suitable for him. 
So God said it's not good, and there's not suitable for him. So God does something. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place, and the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man. And then he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now watch. That's what Adam said. Verse 24. This is what the Lord says. This is what was quoted in Ephesians 5. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So what was God doing in creation? First, God said something. He said it's not good for man to be alone. That was not Adam's statement. That was God's statement. Everything else he had said, this is good, it's good, it's very good, it's good, it's very good, it's good. And now he says, not good. It's not good for man to be alone. Now, what do we mean by alone? Was Adam alone? Well, uh, alone didn't mean he was by himself, meaning were there other living creatures on the planet? Yes, thousands of them. So he wasn't alone in the sense that he was by himself. He was alone in the sense that there was, as he named the camel and the lizard and the eagle and every living creature, he went, Awesome, 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 awesome. Not me, not like me, not like me, not like me. So I have all this life around me, but none suitable for me. What God say? Not good. So what, God, so what does God do? God makes a woman like man. But... Not exactly like him. This is crucial. God says it's not good for Adam, but he doesn't create another Adam. It's, he's like, she is like Adam in what way? This is why we need to know what God was doing. She was like Adam in the fact that she was in the image of God, equal to Adam in the image of God. Did you hear that? Oftentimes, marriage dysfunction and the roles in marriage get twisted and perverted and warped and lead to unhealthy marriage because it's rooted in a mind that the woman is not equal in her likeness to the image of God. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 says very clearly, 
God created man in his, in his image. Male and female, he created them. Husband and wife, both in the image of God. They were alike in that way. <laughs> but they weren't exactly alike. They were not alike so as to be a, a suitable helper. Why is this so important? <laughs> because when God created marriage, he did not repeat. He completed a relationship. And that says everything to one of the issues of our day. As marriage gets redefined, it's being redefined as a repeat. A man and a man or a woman and a woman can be a marriage. But that's not what God had in mind when he created marriage. He said, I'm going to take two individuals who I'm going to form both in my image. But for marriage to be marriage... They're actually going to be different to complete one another. See, same-sex marriage is a violation to how God created marriage. You understand, as a church, why we look at what our culture is redefining and go... That's not consistent with what God did when he made it happen. It's not because we're against people. It's because we understand what God did when he created marriage. He said, I'm going to make a person co-equal in my image, but different to complete. Why? Because as we'll see. Man and woman together give a more clear perfection picture of what and who God is. More than man alone, more than woman alone. And when he created Eve, God obviously made her physically different. But the differences are just or go beyond what the human eye can see. That what she was made different physically, she was also different in her being and how she perceived and how she thought and how she related. She was not a repeat. She was a completing of Adam because what God was doing, and, and here is what we're leading to when God made woman like man, but not exactly like him, he was making husband and wife to be two better as one. Two, a man and a woman better as one. So married, married folks in the room. Is your spouse different than you? Let me see your hand. 
<laughs> yes. More different even than maybe you realized when you married them. Yes. Yes. One of the joyful discoveries. See, everybody thinks, I want to marry somebody just like me. Why? Because that'd be easier and better. Because it's hard to get better than us, right? As, well, we don't ever say that sort of stuff, but that's kind of the way we think. And so we're like, oh, no, I'm going to marry somebody like me. And then it's funny that opposites attract. So you discover your spouse is different than you. And some things come immediately to your mind. Jackie and I sometimes will, when we state a preference now, we will almost always, even before we state it, go, we're going to be different. Beach, mountains. Mexican, if we're going out to eat, Mexican. If it's up to my wife, Mexican. I try not, I never eat Mexican any other time because she's going to go, oh, you want to eat? Yeah, where are you going? I don't need to ask. Mexican. And if I've eaten Mexican for lunch that day or lunch somebody that week, then it's going to be like, so I just need to know. She loves me. She's different in that regard. Active, not as active. Read, play. Different, right? So we discover they're different. Here's, what, here's the kicker, though. How do you respond to that difference? Well, when we were first married, it was frustration. What? That's crazy. Why would you think that? Now you think, you thought that? Uh-huh, I thought that. It was, why would you think that? What? No, we won't do it that way. And, you know, you try not to say stupid stuff, but you say stupid stuff. Like, that would be stupid. (laughs) No, that's the way we've always done it. Why? And so this comes out of you that, that you think differences need to change. How many of you have tried to change your spouse? All right. Ever wonder, why have you tried to change them? Why? Because you're better. (laughs) Now, you would never say that. But we tend to think these these need to change so that we can be one. Do you hear what I just said? We need to change one another so that we can be one. But what did God have in mind? That the differences are what will make you one. You'll be better as one. And some things, I still catch myself. Just less than 10 days ago, we're pulling out a driveway, and we notice our neighbors left her garage door up. And she is uh, done before where she's gone out of town, left her garage door up, and that was, it was a mistake. And so we thought, ah, I wonder if she's here and, and knows it, or if... So we think, ah, it'd be good to let her know. We drive around the corner, and she's standing there. So we're not sure if she's coming or going. So we think, well, we should let her know her garage door's up. She's on Jackie's side, and I'm driving. So I pull up beside, and I expect Jackie to say what? Your garage door's up. Five words. I barely need to slow down, actually. (laughs) Oh, hey, don't you look nice today? Well, that was nice. 
And like three minutes later, I'm thinking, you just need to tell her her garage door's up. That's the only reason we stopped. Seriously. I think, what just happened here? That's my initial reaction. Like, what are we doing? And I, by God's grace, not always, not always, but I'm trying to move from, don't be frustrated, and don't even just tolerate, value, and appreciate. So that I could sit there and go, Okay, that's not, that's not what I would have done. But you know, in my love for efficiency, I often overrun relationship. And so I could drive away and go, our neighbor experiences Christ more because we're one than she would have experienced us separately. Now, I get to process that. (laughs) But I process that that in front of you to help me, help us begin to go when the differences that frustrate us have only, we've only begun to tolerate to go, I don't need to change them. And I don't just go, that's just who they are. But you begin to go, Thanks, Lord. That's good. That's more like you. We're better together as one. See, when I think that, and I don't always think that, (laughs) when I think that, I'm capturing what God has in mind for marriage. So in the spirit of applying what we are doing simply had this little card made to become one. And here's what I'd encourage you to do if you're married. One here, write how your spouse is different than you and why you value it. Not why you want to change it, Why you value it. Why, why you are better because they are, what? Different. Is that valuable? No. It is. It takes some humility to get there, though. So uh, that's something that would be a good gift, I know, for me to give to Jackie. For her to go, Doug has not just learned to tolerate, but appreciate and value differences. A belief that what God was doing in marriage was he was making two better as one. So, little example here for us. When God created... Adam, he said what? Not good for him to be alone. Not that he was alone, but there was no one like him. So he created a woman. 
so that she was like him, but not exactly like him. So that the two together and put a ring on it would be better, right? Actually, I don't think this is what God had in mind. I think what God had in mind is this, that two, are you jealous, miss these days? <laughs> that two would become one. That this actually is better. For one reason, it represents more fully, more completely, the beauty of who God is than just one or the other. That God intended the creating of two. Not just, now we're going to live together and we're going to function together, and we're going to live life together. Marriage is more than that. That's a roommate. That marriage would become the intertwining of two, valuing the differences. See, it's not, oh, we're becoming one color. See, if I did this long enough... Uh, what color would this become? Who knows colors? Brown? Yeah. It's not that, that we would so... We're, no, it's that the beauty of each is still revealed, but the two are better as one. Now, with every illustration, I'm sure that there's a flaw to this, so go ahead and email it <laughs> to Frost. <clears throat> But I like the beauty of what God did versus the way we tend to function. Uh, let's just be two people, but not one. You see, when I see what God was doing here, I recognize this, that two becoming one means that this, the good and the bad I do toward my spouse I'm actually doing toward what? Who? Myself. Why? Why? Don't miss. Because we are, we're one. You see, when, when we have, we're separate people who are living together and functioning together and deciding together, but we are distinct, we remain. See, I can still do something to you and it's to you. And it doesn't involve me. But when we see marriage as God intended. How can I do something to you and it not be done to me? Now, did I make that up? Not at all. Back to Ephesians chapter 5. This is what Paul is describing when he says, so husbands ought to also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. 
Now, can I be honest with you? For most of my life, I didn't get this verse. The best I could do with explaining what I think this verse meant was, hey guys, if you'll love your wife, you'll enjoy the kickback of a well-loved wife. You'll enjoy the fruit of that. And I think that that is often true. That a spouse who is well-loved will love back. But I don't think that's what he's saying here. I think he's saying that when you love your spouse, you're loving yourself because you're one. This is, what's he say next? For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. So actually, for me to understand, when I love Jackie, I'm loving Me, when I cherish her, I'm cherishing me. Why? Because we are one. When she respects me, she's respecting herself. And when she disrespects me, she's disrespecting... Why? Because we're one. Because God made us one. And so he's going, you see it? I put you together, not to just live together and to decide together and to function together. I put you together as only I can so that the two of you will become one. Love her as your own body. Why? Because she is one with you. Evidence? Because we are members of his body. In other words... We are one in marriage as God has made us one in Christ. We're one. So when we do good to our spouse, we're doing good to ourselves. It's not just kickback. It's oneness. And the same when we sin against one another. This gives me new understanding to another verse that I'm not sure I ever really got before. 1 Corinthians 6 is about sexual immorality. And in Corinth, there was a ton of sexual immorality. And he says, flee immorality. But then he says this, every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And I was like, Maybe, I don't know how you heard this growing up. Uh, way this was interpreted for me is when you sin sexually, there are diseases that God has designed that you'd be sinning against your own body. I mean, I kind of got that, but I was like, there's a lot of people who sin and don't have disease. I think this is much more what is at stake here. When we sin sexually, maybe in your mind you've always thought to this point, well, I know I've sinned against God, and I know I've sinned against my spouse, but never recognized because of oneness, you sinned against yourself. You've defiled yourself. You took what God intended, two to become one, 
And you took that oneness and included another person. And when you did that, whether that was virtually or physically, really, you included them into what God intended to be two becoming one. Sinned against him, them, and yourself. See, what I'm trying to help us understand, at least for me, is my understanding of what God had in mind in marriage is helping me understand Scripture more fully. That I increasingly want to understand and live in relationship with Jackie of what God had in mind. Two becoming one. We don't just live together, just function together, decide together. We are one. And when we don't honor that, we're not only sinning against God and the other, but against ourselves. This is why two becoming one means that what God intended for marriage is to be the most intimate relationship. Sexual intimacy is the most intimate humans can be together. And because that's the most intimate that two people can be together, God says, that's for marriage. God's not a prude. (laughs) He's for marriage. And what he had in mind was that this relationship of oneness would get revealed not only in how we function, but literally how we physically relate to one another. That we would relate to one another in a way that we would not relate to any other human being. So I had a a funny moment with my son when he was in sixth grade and he kissed a girl. I found out at the bus stop in sixth grade. Now that's not like, you know, the sin of all sins, but I was surprised and so I asked him a question that surprised him. I said, so tell me, son, tell me, tell me what other women in your life you've kissed. He was like, what? I said, well, you've kissed the girl at the bus stop. Who else have you kissed? And he said, well, mom. All right. Anybody else? Grandma. All right. Anybody else? No. I said, oh, so you want this girl to become part of the family? He was like, Dad, that's so stupid. Of course not. And I was like, I'm just highlighting the fact that you have done something with her that you haven't done with anybody else in the family. Now, again, I don't think it's a sin for a sixth grader to kiss somebody at the bus stop. It's not what I'm in favor of, but I don't know. It was terrible. What did, I want him to commu- what did I want to communicate in principle? That in family, specifically in marriage, there's something exclusive physically exclusive. And we don't treat those things lightly. 
And the kiss is kind of that first step towards a type of physical connection that God says that's reserved for the one relationship. See, think about that. That's reserved for the one relationship. Most intimate human relationship, marriage. So we honor it with sexual purity. Second, two becoming one means marriage is the relationship God intended to be permanent. This is the relationship that God intended to be permanent. God bless Jackie and I with six kids. They'll always be our kids. But does that relationship change? Does it change? Yes. Does God intend it to change? Yes. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave mom and dad and cleave to his wife. This is the relationship God intended to be most permanent. So mom and dad, as our kids grow up, we should be preparing to let them go. And not stay too involved. Little insight into my mom and dad's marriage, but when Jackie and I got married, he said at the wedding, the best thing for you too is that you will be 300 miles away from the closest in-laws. And there was some genuine, there was some hardship with that, and there was some genuine value to that. Because I I had done dozens and dozens and dozens of weddings, but it wasn't until I did the wedding for the first wedding for one of my kids, Will, our second born, was the first to be married, and we stood on this stage. And after he and Danielle had shared their vows and given their rings to one another, I said with my mic off, Will, uh, this is a new relationship. I want you to lead your wife now in prayer for the first time. And I stepped away. And I had said the words, but I had never seen before what God was doing in marriage was actually a new birth. That a wedding is a new birth. A new relationship was born right before our eyes. And that it was God's intent that we would allow that relationship to become the primary relationship in his life. As much as we loved him as mom and dad, we would love him best by allowing him and all of our married kids to prioritize that relationship. Because it's the permanent one, not ours. Jesus when asked about divorce, said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall, so he goes back to, when asked about marriage, he goes back to the creation, leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. 
what therefore God has joined together. Let no one separate. So God intends it to be the most permanent. Now, I recognize for some of you, this is real heartache in your life. You believed that, but your spouse didn't. And you're divorced. Or maybe you didn't know that, and divorce is a part of your story. Divorce is part of my parents' story. I've been open about that. I also want you to know that God's grace is a part of my parents' story. My mom is 82, 83, and married to a godly man. At age 70, she got married to a, a godly man. My point is this. God, I'm, I'm not minimizing. God intends marriage to be permanent. But that's not the way it always happens or works out. And you are not disqualified before the Lord. You're not an outcast before the Lord. There can be God's grace in your life as there is God's grace in the sin in everyone's life. And we all have sin. So I have a friend who's described for years he felt like he had a scarlet D in the church. And I want to uphold marriage. But I don't want to make divorce something that sidelines you. God's grace in your life for all the sin that we need grace for in all of our lives. But let's be clear. What I love most about this picture is this. Can I take this apart and put the pink back and the green back? To a degree, but not very well. And that's what makes hard. People divorce. I try and pull it apart, but I have been made one by God. And so it hurts for the rest of life. God's grace, but it hurts for the rest of life because God made two, what? One. See, the foundation of marriage, friends, is that you and I would engage and embrace what God had in mind when he created marriage. Not two people to just live together and function together and decide together, but for two people to become one and remain one. Because relationship, marriage is to be most permanent and most intimate Two becoming one makes marriage the most important human relationship. It is the most important human relationship. Not because I say so, but because of what the Bible says about this relationship. In Ephesians 5, Here's this crazy two verses, 31 and 32. He quotes, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. What's he talking about? What's he talking about? You think I'm tricking you. He's talking about marriage. He's quoting the passage in Genesis 2 where God created marriage. But the curveball that he throws us is this mystery is great. But I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. 
And you read that and think, what? No, you're talking about, you're talking about marriage. Do you not read that and go, where'd that come from? No, you've been talking about marriage. And then he goes back in verse 33 and talks about marriage. Husbands, love your wife as yourself and wives respect your husbands. He's talking about marriage, right? He goes, no, I'm talking about the church in Christ. Well, which is it? See, this is the beauty. He's going, oh, when I'm talking about marriage, I'm talking about Christ in the church because this human relationship of two becoming one is intended, and it was from the beginning, from when it was created, it was intended to be the physical representation of the relationship God would have with his people, that Jesus would have with his church, which he calls his bride. So watch this. When you were at a place where, by God's grace, you recognized your sin and you believed in Jesus and you received the free gift of God, what happened to you? You became reconciled to God and he poured his spirit into you. You became one with God. Christ in you and you in Christ. Not to just come alongside and help you when you needed help or give you wisdom when you needed wisdom or strength when you needed strength. But to become so interwoven into your life and your life so interwoven into his life that there was a picture of two became one. Do you hear what I'm saying? That when Paul writes about marriage, he's writing about not only a human relationship between two people, a man and a woman, he's writing about a relationship between Jesus and his people because both are two becoming one. So married or single or divorced, the most important question is this. Is this you and the Lord? Are you one with him? And then a human relationship is just a visible demonstration of the most important relationship. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Seek God first. Have a relationship with him above all. The marriage is the most important human relationship because it is the relationship that God created to be a living demonstration of the spiritual relationship between Jesus and me. So, are you valuing if you're married, if you become married, will it be the most important relationship? It's intended to be because it's what it represents. So let's go from Plato to this. Jesus didn't talk about Plato. 
(laughs) he talked about these elements of a simple piece of bread. Let me invite you to take the cellophane off the top. This simple piece of bread and this foil. Because in the same way that I would suggest this is a symbol of marriage, Jesus said, these are symbols of what I've done for you. The, the bread, this unleavened wafer, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be reconciled to God. If you don't have one, just put your hand up and our guys will help you get one. And that this, this cup, a symbol of the reminder that Jesus shed his blood because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So this is a reminder of the gospel, that God has made a way for you to be made one with him. Not by your works, because you and I could never be good enough, but by grace through faith, we who were separated could be restored one. And he said, take in remembrance of me. But he also said, and examine yourselves. As ones who have been made one with him, and you're married, is this what your marriage looks like? Are you pursuing it as most important, most permanent? protecting it is most intimate. So let's take a quiet moment, bow our heads together, and let's thank the Lord for his substitutionary death by which we can be made right with God. And let's examine our lives. And we live in as he intended marriage to be lived. And if we're single, you can live in a manner that honors the sanctity of marriage even before you're married. Lord Jesus, where those who are listening are not yet in relationship with you, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that they might know oneness with you, Savior, forgiver, and leader. For those who are married, would you encourage them, instruct them, admonish, correct? Would you find in the merits those who are aligning themselves under your word, pursuing that relationship as most important, most permanent, most intimate? For those who are not married, honoring marriage by their own purity, their own encouragement toward marriage. Lord, thank you that as we take, we are reminded that you have given us all we need to do all you said because you are who you call us to be. We take now in remembrance of you with gratitude.
Would you stand with me and let's simply declare together that we want to be known by our love.